Romans 8 is the sort of passage that uh, is just so good in and of itself, I'm almost tempted just to give a benediction. <laughs> Say, we good. Let's call it a day. I was recently traveling with a group of uh, friends by air, and we were at the airport on the way back from our trip. And we had each individually made our own travel arrangements, and so we were all sort of excited to get back home. And uh, unfortunately, one of the friends who traveled with us uh, made his flight arrangements wrongly. He set his flight for the next day rather than the day he was supposed to fly out with the rest of us. And so he went to the, the, the counter, went to customer service, and said, listen, here's the thing. I've made a mistake. Is there anything you can do for me? And they said, well, yeah, I mean, we can, we can put you on standby. So it's a full flight, no promises, but it's possible that someone's not going to show up, and it's possible that you might be able to make this flight. And so as all of us who had traveled there together were, were standing in the line and sort of anticipating walking on, because we have our tickets, we're about to be scanned and go on to the flight to reach our final destination, our dear friend was standing by nervous. He was anxious. He didn't know what his, his next moments held for him. He did not know whether or not he was going to reach his final destination. I don't think that that's the sort of spirit that we should bring to our Christian life. Uh, Paul very clearly wants us to have an assurance of our salvation. It's part of the reason I wanted to read all of Romans 8 together, is so you can capture all of this at, at once. There is a surety to the love of God. I know both from personal experience and from conversations with you, even in the, the past few weeks, that we have a hard time believing that God loves us. God is perfect and holy and transcendent, and we are imperfect and sinful and lowly. It doesn't exactly sound like a match made in heaven. There are at least three reasons, I think, that we doubt God's love for us. First, we misunderstand God's love. We very often think of love as being conditional, like an if-then statement. If this condition is met, then I will be lovable. If, so for example, if I can stop falling into a specific sin, then God will be able to love me. A second reason, accusations from Satan our conscience and the law. We are stung with accusations from Satan who points out very true things about us, reminds us of the things that we have done. He accuses us of being sinful and he's not wrong. Our conscience too makes us think that we're unlovable. We have a deep existential awareness that we are not what we should be. And beyond that, God's law points out even more clearly the sinfulness of our sin. The law came along to multiply our trespasses against God. This is Romans 5.20. Third, we experience suffering. We are prone to think that if God loved us, we wouldn't experience any suffering. Living under the weight of sinful passions of the flesh and enduring the suffering of slings and arrows feels suspiciously like God's wrath being poured out upon us. We might think, he must be displeased with me or I wouldn't be in this distress that I'm in. Well, today's sermon text puts all those fears to rest 
We won't plumb the depths of everything that this passage has to say. My goal is simply to explain what it says, what it means, why it matters. But we're not going to come close to draining all of the implications from this passage in the next 40 minutes or so. Because even if we spent eternity on it, we still wouldn't be done considering the boundless love of God. Could we, with ink, the ocean fill? And were the skies of parchment made? Were every stalk on earth a quill? And everyone a scribe by trade? To write the love of God above would drain the ocean dry. Nor could scroll contain the whole, though stretched from sky to sky. I've come to terms with this fact. And in an effort to preserve the ink in your pen, today's big idea is four words. God is for you. God is for you. Here's our outline. First, God gave his son for you. We're going to see this in verses 31 to 32. Second, the ultimate judge already enacted justice for you. We see this in 33 to 34. Third, nothing will separate you from God's love for you. We see this in 35 through 39. Let's pray together before we start. Father, we need, we need your help this morning. We ask that you, by your spirit, would renew our minds, that you would help this, the, the logic of this argument that is so solid and foolproof settle down into our hearts so that we can't just sort of assent to it as being a, something that is true, but that it would change the way that we live, the way that we think of ourselves. Father, we ask for your help this morning, knowing that you will graciously give it. We'll pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. First, God gave his son for you. What then shall we say to these things? I'll read verses 31 and 32 back into our hearing. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? With Christ, all things are yours. All things are yours with Christ. This passage marks the end of a long train of thought that goes back to, at the very least, the beginning of chapter 5, perhaps even in the beginning of Book of Romans but at least back to chapter five. And so when he asks the question, what then shall we say to these things? He's thinking about these sort of truths that we've read uh, over the weeks here in Romans. Romans five, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. He will then spend the next three chapters fleshing that out for us. And now he's summing it all up. He's putting a bow on it. We can rejoice in suffering because it ultimately produces hope. And that hope will not be put to shame. God has poured his love into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, 
Christ died for the ungodly. God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That means that we're saved from God's wrath. So this, this whole passage that we're reading this morning is lifting our eyes and reminding us of God's promises, of his sovereignty, of his greatness, of God's otherness. Paul's not playing out a hypothetical situation here when he asks this question here. He's, he's not simply doing a thought experiment. He, he's making a point. When he asks this question, you can add a little exclamation point to it. Who could be against us? And we know, of course, that there can be those who are against us. There are forces against us. We know this experientially. But when we realize that God is for us, no one who is against us matters. We realize that no weapon that is formed against us shall prosper or succeed. How do we know this? We read the next verse and he explains it. How do we know that God is for us? Because he handed over his son to be condemned in our place. That's the evidence. If you don't know if God is for you, you look to the cross. Sometimes we misunderstand God's love. Uh, and part of the reason is we, we, we read our own understanding of a fallen experience of human love back up into the person of God. We experience love as an emotional affection for something that is lovely. So we assume that there must be a, a necessity, a need for there to be something lovely about us in order for God to set his love upon us. But God's ways are not our ways. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are his ways higher than, his, than our ways, his thoughts than our thoughts. Remember that Jesus himself said that he did not come for the righteous, but for sinners. And remember what Paul has already told us. Christ died for the ungodly. God demonstrated his love for us in that we were, we were still sinners. Christ died for us. God's love is not enabled by our being lovely enough for him. The National Football League held their draft just a few weeks ago. All the football players who are eligible for the draft go to an event where they're going to put all their skills on display. So they'll throw the ball as far as they can. They will jump as high as they can, lift as much weights as they can, run as fast as they can. Coaches from all the NFL teams there are, are trying to watch, trying to observe, trying to figure out who the best players are because they want to draft them into their own team. And so the coaches read through the stat sheets and they pick out the best players they can get. Every team wants to choose the best players for themselves so that they can win the championship next year. God did not choose you based on your stat sheet. If you had a trading card with your godliness stats on the back, it would be an embarrassment. Let's just be honest. God didn't flip through a deck of cards before he laid the foundations in the world and say, oh, this lady's gonna go to church every Sunday, She'll be able to recite the Westminster Catechism. I need her on my team so that I can win the championship. If there was such a deck of cards, and there's not, if there was, none of our cards would read anything but rebellious child of Adam. 
We, just like Paul, can be honest about our unworthiness. We can lay our hand on that truth, and we can affirm that it reflects reality. And at the same time, we can lay hold of this reality. Nothing is more precious or of more worth than Christ. And the Father gave him up for you. The only begotten eternal Son of God. Just in case you've forgotten who it is that we're speaking about here. He is the image of the invisible God. He is the firstborn of all creation. All things created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, were created through him and for him. He is before all things and he holds all things together. He is the heir of all things. Every bit of land, every head of cattle, every pound of platinum, every bit of Bitcoin, every last red cent belongs to Christ. His worth is beyond comparison. His riches are unsearchable. He is incomparably rich in goodness, in wisdom, in glory, and in patience. One drop of his grace is worth more than all of the gold of all of the earth. And no matter how much of his grace he expends, his resources never get drained. Like a burning bush that is never consumed, or a flowing fountain that is never drained If every saint and angel combined their efforts to reach the bottom of his riches, we never would get there. This Jesus, his precious blood, was poured out by the Father for you. So while we confess truthfully and humbly our unworthiness, we cling tightly to the declaration that God the Father saw fit to give up the most worthy person for us. Another Christian mystery to add to the list. Our unworthiness and our worth. If we have Christ, we have all things, because Christ is the heir of all things, and by faith we are his brother, sister, and we share in his inheritance as precious daughters and treasured sons. All things are yours. All things here, of course, is a mixture of of things now, like the forgiveness of sins or adoption as sons and daughters, the indwelling spirit of Christ. But it's also a mixture of things yet to come, like the final resurrection to life everlasting and reigning with him in glory over a new heavens and a new earth. But the point here is that God will not, when all is said and done, withhold anything good from his people because he's already given us the greatest good in Christ himself. So when you think that God won't be able to love you because you're unworthy, just reminded that only unworthy people have ever found salvation in Christ. Though you are unworthy, Christ is worthy. To think that you yourself need to be worthy to come to God is in fact an act of pride, and it is a misunderstanding of the gospel. The gospel is that Jesus was born of the Virgin Mary, perfectly obeyed the Father in every way, suffered the punishment for human sin in our place, and Jesus, because he is truly God, was able to bear the righteous anger of God against sin and yet overcome death. He died on the cross as a sacrifice, paying our sin debt with his own blood, reconciling us back to God. 
Jesus was physically resurrected, declaring his victory over sin, death, and the devil. And Jesus then ascended to heaven, and he will return again bodily to judge the living and the dead. So what do we do in response to what Christ has done? We repent and believe. The Bible says you need faith and repentance. First, you must put your faith in God's promise of salvation by grace alone in Christ alone. By faith, Jesus takes our sin, and we get to take his righteousness. Second, you must repent, which is to say turn away from your sin and toward God. When you do, you receive forgiveness and you become an heir of his infinite riches and grace as his child. If you haven't done this, please find someone to talk to after the service. You're in a place filled with friendly people who would love to talk to you about the gospel. At the cross, God gave his son in the place of ruined sinners and declared them righteous on his account. Christ's account. This is point two. The ultimate judge already enacted justice for you. Verses 33 to 34 say this. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is interceding for us. So because we are justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And if God is for us, no one of any real danger can really be against us. No one can bring a charge against us or condemn us because God has justified us and Christ has paid the penalty of our condemnation that we do rightly owe. Notice that condemnation and accusation bringing a charge Those two realities are set up in contrast over against justification and intercession. And notice how that's working there in the text. There are two questions in these two verses. The first is, who will bring a charge against God's elect? And then the second is, who is to condemn? In the American criminal justice system, the people are represented by two separate Yet equally important groups, the police who investigate the crime, and the district attorneys who prosecute the offenders. Some of y'all got ahead of me. That was a law and order reference. This is kind of like that. You've got two potential threats to your assurance of faith. One, that, that might bring you up on accusation of charges of breaking the law, and then the other might be to declare you guilty of those charges that have been brought against you. But Paul answers both of these questions by showing us that they are not legitimate threats. The first question, who shall bring any charge against God's elect, just think with me. If you were brought up on charges of breaking God's law, who would preside over that case? Who has jurisdiction over God's law? It is God. And remember what God has already said, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So if God has forgiven you, you're forgiven. The judge of all the earth has already declared you not guilty. Better yet, he declared you righteous. God has already declared his verdict, so it makes no sense for someone to bring a charge against you. The second question, who is the one who condemns? 
Paul here responds by saying that Jesus has already paid the penalty for your condemnation. This is what he's saying when he says Jesus is the one who died. The wages of sin is death. He is the one who died, and he died in your place. But it gets even better than that because he didn't just absorb the penalty. He rose again from the dead and demonstrated that death itself is defeated. And it gets even better than that because not only did he raise from the dead, he also ascended to the right hand of the Father where even now he's currently interceding for us. In other words, Christ has already accomplished your salvation and he is currently applying your salvation. Jesus interceding for us means that he's making a case on our behalf, a third party between the Father and you, between God and man, the God-man. He makes your case before the judge based on the merits of his blood, not your worthiness. What Jesus is doing as he intercedes is really the opposite of bringing a charge against you. So we might face charges of guilt, we might fear condemnation, but God has already justified you in the past, and Christ is presently speaking on your behalf. And the Father delights in the case that the Son is making for you. We mentioned earlier that sometimes we have a hard time believing that God loves us because we have faced accusations from Satan, our conscience, and from God's law. And the only way that those accusations would actually be able to settle into our heart to cause us to fear, to cause us despair, is if we didn't believe that God is for us. Think back to that first man, Adam. God told him that a penalty of death would follow his rebellion. But Eve rebelled, Adam rebelled. They assumed that God was withholding something good from them. So they rebelled against his law, and afterwards they feared that God would be their judge. And so they hid because they were afraid. They expected the judgment of God. And you and I, as sons and daughters of Adam and Eve, have inherited that fear. And if you have not, let me be clear, if you have not trusted in Christ to take on that penalty in your place, you, sh you should fear the judgment. That's a good thing. You, you should not only think of God as your creator, but as your judge. But if you cling to Christ, he's not just your creator and your judge, but he is your father. Even for us who have extended our faith, who've put our trust in Christ, we still have a hard time with this, however. We still have that fear that God's just waiting to jump out of nowhere and zap us for our sin. So we hide. It's easy for us to read a text like this and to think that it's true. It's another thing entirely to live as if it were true. If you really believe that you were an adopted child of God, if you believed all of Satan's accusations against you fell on deaf ears, if you believe that God the Father is leaning in and hearing Christ's intercession for you on your behalf and listening and smiling and nodding, if you took the time to correct your conscience, if you reminded yourself that slavery, despair, and a spirit of fear do not define you as a child of God, if you shifted your vision of God's law and you saw God's law not as something that should bring you fear of punishment, but rather something that is a guide to help you know how to please God with your obedience, something that is helpful for you to lead to your own flourishing and the flourishing of those around you. What if you believed that? 
Think back to the most recent time you've heard one of these voices of accusation. It could have been over something, a serious, dangerous sin. It might have been something over something trivial, the sort of thing that if you were to explain it out loud, the sort of things that go on in your mind and the voices of accusation, if you were to explain it out loud, people would be like, wow, why would you even hold yourself to that standard? Think back to that last event and remember, recall that God the Father, the judge, justified you. The Son paid your penalty as a sacrificial lamb and even now intercedes for you as a sympathetic high priest. In other words, stop thinking about yourself. Think more about God. Remember what comes just before these verses. It was a couple of weeks ago, but it's just there before these verses in Romans 8. That golden chain of salvation in which we read that God foreknew, predestined, called, justified, and glorified those that are his This is why Paul refers to those upon whom God has set his steadfast love in this verse as God's elect. Now, we might think of being called God's elect as something that we could be proud of. This is a a cause of uh, boasting or something, that we are a part of God's elect. But it's actually a really humbling title. It's an acknowledgement that no one would have chosen God unless God had not first chosen him or her that his choice is based on his good pleasure and not any conditions that you needed to meet in order to justify for his love, to qualify for his love. The truth is, it's actually prideful to reject this title because it implies that there was something about you that attracted his grace and caused him to bless you with salvation. That's actually making God your elect, and that's to get the order backwards. If you've come to Christ as your Savior, if you have picked up your cross and you are following him, it's evidence that you are a part of this group that Paul refers to here as God's elect. We would not have loved him if he had not first loved us. So, do you delight in the triune God of your salvation? Not perfectly, not constantly as we ought, but sincerely. If you do, know that God is not second-guessing whether or not he should have saved you. He's not second-guessing his adoption of you. He's not tired of you. He's not waiting for your case to come back up on appeal at some point in the future. Every tongue that rises against you in judgment will be refuted. God himself vindicates you. And there is no court more supreme than God's heavenly court. Out of mere grace, without any merit of your own, he imputes to you the perfect satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness of Christ. There should be no fear or unbelief because the Father has put to grief his spotless Son for us. No wrath remains for us to face. Don't fear being banished from God because he is for you. And if he is for you, nothing will separate you from his love. Point three, nothing will separate you from God's love for you. Verses 35 to 39. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine 
or nakedness or danger or sword. As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Paul ends this section of Romans with another question. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? And then he goes on to list some things that we might assume could potentially separate us from God's love. He says that they can't, and then he just reaffirms that nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. He uses just notice at the beginning and end of this particular passage, 35 to 39. Notice at the beginning he says that he refers to the love of Christ or the love of God. He uses them interchangeably here, the beginning and the end. Just make note that Jesus' death did not cause the Father to love you. His substitutionary atonement on your behalf was an evidence that the Father loves you. It was not the cause of his love for you. That might seem like a small thing, but we wouldn't want to misunderstand the Trinity by thinking that Christ's intercession on your behalf means that God the Father doesn't want you to be saved and Jesus is convincing him that you, that you ought to be. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit are united in their mission to save you. He lists off things that we assume might keep us from the love of God, and he says he is convinced that nothing in reality truly can. He lists off basic physiological and security needs, the sort of the basic things that you might find on Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Tribulation, outward trials, distress, inward anxieties, persecution, opposition from God's enemies, famine, a lack of food and water, nakedness, a lack of clothing and shelter, danger, threats to physical security, a sword, acts of, or threats of violence, actually, acts of violence, including potentially even death. This is why he quotes Psalm 44 right on the, the, the tail end of that there. Psalm 44 is a psalm of national lament. Psalm 44 is uh, giving voice to Israel, God's chosen people who are calling out to God for salvation during their own experiences of opposition from God's enemies. They testify that they haven't abandoned God, they haven't forgotten him, they haven't been false to his covenant, and yet they are subjected to danger, to persecution, and even death. Paul quotes this verse to remind us that God's people have often faced situations like this, but that does not mean that they should interpret that situation to mean that they are separated from the love of God. In fact, God preserved psalms like this one to help us voice our pain while we suffer, just as Christ used the psalms to give voice to his pain while he suffered. We are prone to think that if God loved us, we wouldn't experience suffering. But that's to misinterpret God's providence. God has many purposes for our suffering so we can't look at our trials and assume that they must be evidence that God is not for us. 
He says that God makes us more than conquerors, even in all those things. This is the only time that this particular word is used in the Bible. It means we prevail mightily. We are abundantly victorious. We don't just conquer, but we super conquer. Kind of like the embarrassing victory that the Mavericks gained over the Suns this last Sunday. Too soon. (laughs) It's going above and beyond what is necessary for victory. Suffering precedes glory, and the suffering, weighty as it is, isn't worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us when Christ returns or calls us home. And so Paul says that he is convinced, he is sure, that death or life, angels or rulers, and we should think of demons when he says rulers, rulers of this present age, like he uses it in Ephesians 6, things present, things to come, no power, no height, nor depth, And then he throws in a catch-all category at the end. Anything else in all creation. Anything that's created is everything that is not God. And we've already clarified that God is for you. So that about covers it. That's anything and everything ever. This is the list of things that cannot keep you from God's love, as Paul provides it for us there at the end of Romans 8. These are categories that pretty much cover everything. And so the next time that you're tempted to to despair of God's love for you, think about what it is that's troubling you, and then bring it to these categories and see if it fits into one of them. It will. Spoiler alert. I'm kind of a visual learner. Let me give you a pie chart and see if that helps. These are the things that can separate you from God's love. It was kind of a boring pie chart because it was actually just a blue circle. So I added some yellow to it just to spiff it up a little bit. But the point is the same. Nothing. Nothing can separate you from the love of God in Christ, Christian. So the next time you are tempted to tip into despair, repent of your disbelief. Cling to God's promises. Rest the full weight of your heavy soul upon the promise that God loves you. And as you do that, you'll begin to reframe your experience of suffering. And you can turn it into fuel for faithfulness rather than a reason to despair. You are not forsaken by God. You are not uniquely unlovable. His love for you is unassailable, which just simply means that it cannot be defeated. God's love is absolute. God's love is conclusive. It is indisputable. It is infallible. It is undeniable. It is determined. It is firm. It is fixed. It is steadfast. And it endures forever. Let's pray.